Hey guys, welcome back. I'm joined with Gemma and we have a special guest. Gemma, I'll go ahead and turn this over to you so you can introduce who we're going to be talking to today. Thanks, Shane. I am so glad to be back with Shane. We're going to keep bringing some new episodes. And so tonight we are welcoming a really unique pair of visitors. We are welcoming Annie and her dad, and we're going to call her dad the brother. Now, this is not Brother Bob. This is the brother because he was a religious brother, not a police officer. He's no longer a religious brother, but for their well-being and comfort, we're going to change their names. And they have an interesting story to tell us. Brother, can you tell us a little bit about your life as a religious brother? And I started out in high school in Philadelphia. I school taught by the Christian brothers. And really impressed with the work they were doing with quite a spread of uh, economic levels of students. And I decided I'd like to do that. So when I was in my senior year, I signed up to join. And that's pretty much how I first started out. After going through the initial preparation and learning the university, Stayed with them, went to college at LaSalle College, Philadelphia. My major was science and mainly physics and math. The brothers didn't have a lot of physics and math teachers. They wanted me to do that. But it was difficult because it was hard to work in those long labs. A lot of times they went overtime after graduating I stayed around for an additional year. I went through physics in three years and then stayed around for the first year and got another degree in what they call the Masters in Religion. My first assignment was teaching in Western Maryland. And at a time when that city was in economic depression, And the railroad was closing up. They had closed their shops and switched over from steam over to diesel. And that meant that all of the coal lines out in Western Maryland were closing. There was actually a bit of hunger and starvation. Children passing out in school because they had nothing to eat for two days. Real starvation. And these were the kids that we were teaching in Cumberland. I found real success there, was able to teach them well. So many of the students, two-thirds of those boys, went into college and they had not been had that advantage before. It was working with a team of brothers who were just fantastic friends and teachers. And I felt very proud of what I was doing, it was something I liked. They went to college, they graduated, so it was something that was winning with poor kids. Their fathers were and mothers were unemployed. If they could get any job at all, it would be just delivering a couple streets of newspaper, and that was it. So I liked what I was able to do. It required a whole lot of work. And these people, was worthwhile and I was succeeding. And then 
after I was there, I guess about six years. Man named Yudav, a science teacher at a brand new diocesan school near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Trinity High School. I went there to teach at the first year of the first graduating class. And they needed certain credits and degrees among their teachers to get the Middle States certification to uh, be able to issue diplomas. And I was part of that certification with all the credits that I had picked up. I discovered at Trinity, I was also teaching some general science freshmen, and I found out that they didn't know very much science coming into Trinity High School. I'd say it was fifth grade level, maybe even fourth grade level. And when talking with the other teachers and some of the sisters who also taught there, asking me, how are the girls doing in science? And they said, we have to go teach some the elementary school stuff before we can get to our high school biology. Okay, what do we do about this? My first year there with a couple of the sisters, we offered to the superintendent of schools of the Harrisburg Diocese to run workshops for the 7th and 8th grade teachers in the parish schools for the whole diocese at Trinity if the diocese would pay for the courses, the expenses of the workshops for the sisters. And they didn't have to pay me and they didn't have to pay the two sisters who were working on it. And we started teaching every other Saturday workshops that they could teach in 7th and 8th grade in their classrooms. Since we couldn't buy a whole bunch of equipment, I would go out to the hardware store and buy some wood and nails and stuff like that. And we would build samples and then give the sisters the things that they could take, either build them at the workshop or take them back to their parish and build them. Not only did the sisters learn science, they boosted their science students up to, in some of the schools, to the 10th grade level from the 8th grade students. And this was in diocesan testing for entering high schools. What were the years that you were a religious brother? Let's see. Teaching. My first classes in Western Maryland, September 1959. I picked up my master's degrees, University of Notre Dame, 1969. And that's when I started teaching in Baltimore City as a brother with three other brothers. Can you just explain to me the difference between a brother and a priest? Yes, a priest goes through a lot of studies and things like that and is usually trained at a seminary and then is ordained. And their duties would be to say Mass, administer the sacraments, and do the preaching in the churches, and usually work church-based. The Christian brothers 
I might say some of the best teachers I ever had seen, not just back then, but even today, are school-based. They do not get ordained, and they were founded in France by a priest who had to keep fighting the clergy, knowing him will not ordain my brothers. <laughs> so they were to teach and the purpose in writing and the rules was to teach the poor. And they used to grab round up the boys in the streets of Paris or Rheims and other places in France, the urchins, and bring them in and start teaching them how to read, write, and count and things like that. And really change education from the tutoring in the monastery and church to simultaneous education in classes. So the Christian brothers' purpose was to teach the poor. And I found that the Christian brothers were building brand new schools in the suburban areas and closing their schools in the inner cities whether it was Calvert Hall, Baltimore, moving to Townsend. In other words, abandoning the poor and the tuitions way up there. And I thought, do I really want to do this? Plus the salary of, I was busting my butt to increase education previously in a whole diocese. And being criticized and no cooperation and stuff like that. A detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask... Did you kill Renee? Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Are brothers part of the Archdiocese? 
Now they have their separate authority base that they work in cooperation with the diocese and in many cases teaching in the schools that the diocese has built and also financed. And for their work, the brothers then receive, they call it a stipend, but it's a pay that the individual brothers don't get, but the faculty of that school of brothers and some of that money goes to support the brothers' training and retirement house and stuff like that. So it's a cooperative basis where they used to have nuns teaching all the grade schools back in the 1900s and 1800s. The brothers were doing that usually on the high school level, running the boys' section of schools. And it was something that I saw was changing as they were going for the higher-dollar student. Keogh was one of those schools, one of those new schools. And you told me when we talked last week that you met Sister Kathy Sesnick and Sister Helen Russell. How did you meet them? When I was with three other brothers, we formed a cabal. And we said, we don't want to teach in your high price schools to the top leaders in the district of the East Coast, mainly, and said, we want to teach the poor and the poor are in the city, so we want to teach in the urban education. They knew we might have going to sign out or they'd give us an approval, so they did. A small, keen experiment. Now, other people, other brothers and nuns saw this as something they wanted to do also. After we got our paperwork and the plan and all the written uh, plan approved, the brothers said, okay, you can go do that. Go teach them someplace. We chose Baltimore. And we're going around, and some of the sisters, during 1969, I'd say in the spring there, where we had our approval, we were going to rent our house, and we found a place, and we signed up as employees of Brandonmore City Schools. Some of the sisters said, maybe we'd like to do that too. I was invited in the spring of 69 to go to Seagull Keogh High School and speak to a group of the sisters are interested in knowing what we're doing. Not that they were going to all rush out and do the same. And there was a meeting. It was sometime in the spring at Seton Keogh in their convent, or meeting room or whatever, a larger room, with a group of maybe a dozen of the sisters who wanted to know why we were doing this and what are the details. And they started going into some additional questions. Who do you contact in a public school if you want to work there? And they're thinking a little deeper than just, we want to know what you're doing. Sister Jalanita, that was her name at that time. I am certain was there in that group of sisters. You're giving credence to the story that we heard 
about why they left Keo. And what you're saying is that when we met with the sisters at the convent, that was the topic of discussion. So you've made that all clarified that for us because we never really knew why they were leaving, but it makes sense that you spoke to them. And for the listeners that are not aware, Sister Joanita was Sister Kathy. She changed her name to her real name before she left Keogh. So Sister Joanita was Sister Kathy and Sister Ignatius was Sister Helen Russell. You've given credence to that story that we were never sure about. And by the way, the dedication was rising in the schools and in the Catholic Church. But what aren't we doing for black children? And this was what, one year after the assassination of Martin Luther King. So this is the rising of the people who want to do something about people who are not being well-educated and should be. That's how I met those sisters. Brother, you had mentioned to Gemma about a prayer in a discussion room that you attended while in the cafeteria at Archbishop Keogh. What would you remember about that experience? I think what you told me last week was that you had been attending those prayer groups and that Kathy, Russell, and some of the priests that we've heard about you shared with me that you had been going for a while before Kathy disappeared, and they would talk to you in those meetings about leaving Keogh. Sister Kathy was there. I think those prayer groups, which were really an extension of a seminar and discussion groups of just where is Catholic education going, here and there, I was teaching at Dunbar. I think I went to speak to other sisters, not just school sisters. And they were looking for a new apostolate for their service. For some of the other topics that you covered, because that was a really radical time in the 60s. Did you talk about the war? Did you talk about... Conscientious objection. What kind of topics did you cover? Yes. And the weather and the drafting kids from the city schools, the boys, right into the Vietnam War, right after graduation. That was one of the things that I wasn't necessarily totally against the war. I was against the way they were doing things to the people. And that they, as I call it, and I had read it somewhere, this is a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. I didn't like the way that they were taking the poor right off the stage after graduation. I was meeting with this group and we would get together, but no longer in the convent. And sometimes in the... In fact, it was in the school. And what room, I don't know, but I remember going down steps to get to the room. Probably uh, the cafeteria. Probably the cafeteria. Yeah, it didn't seem to be that large, though. But in any case, it might have been. 
but the discussions would go around political things and then religious things and new ways of teaching this. And somebody had, I remember one of the, might have been a lay teacher, it was not wearing a habit, but she distributed some new style hymns that were not the usual churchy type, more like the end, we shall overcome, but in a Catholic way. So I don't know. And we would learn those things and keep going. But the discussions were more like, what is our future and what's the future of the church and what's the future of the religious orders? Because this ain't going to last. And I was one of the people who had at least one foot in one of the options. Now, after Sister Kathy was missing, it turned into more of a let us pray for her. Because as far as we knew, she had been abducted. We knew nothing beyond that. Her body had not been found. Everybody feared that she had been killed, but we did not have anything that told us that. So we would pray like that and then have a shorter session. Brother, I want to get to the real crux of the big issue that is the reason we invited you, not just because you're a fascinating and articulate speaker, but you shared with me last week that you remember Joseph Maskell being at the meetings and Father Jerry Coob, who was a Jesuit, Kathy and Russell. And I believe you said there were some other sisters from the convent. And that brings me to ask you, you shared with me one evening in November of 1969, which was after Kathy disappeared, but before she was found, that the nun who organized the meeting asked you to drive Joseph Maskell to where he had left his car. Can you tell us, can you pick it up there and tell us where you went and what happened? Because it's brand new information for everybody. I was not a leader of the group, but one of the sisters asked me if I would provide transportation for Father Maskell to go pick up his car. We're coming up around 9.30 or so, and dark out. Okay, sure. Give him a ride on it. And when I took him to my car, then we started out, and I said, where are you parked? And he said, rather than get it directly to the car, there's something I have to pick up. And I said, where is that? And he was giving directions almost intersection by intersection. And we went to this row of apartments. And I think we've been able to identify what street it is. Right off Edmondson Avenue near Shark Bend in some avenue. And it's most likely Lonnery Lane. And yes. I think it was Lonnery Lane. They did not seem to be high price. There's the Abbey Square Apartments. That's on Nunnery Lane. That's closer to Edmondson Avenue. Okay. 
maybe a block away. It's also down Notary Lane is the Ivy Crossing at Caton's Doll Apartments. Both of these apartments are still there now, but they have been there. I think one of them was from the 40s. They've both been renovated and updated. Is it the Ivy Crossing? Is that one closer to Frederick? Yes. Yes. Okay. Brother, do you remember if you were closer to Frederick or closer to Edmondson when you went there? Closer to Edmondson. Okay. And the apartments did not seem to be on the high-price luxury or even new. There were other apartments. And just as a side, the apartments where Kathy and the other sister rented were much newer and much better. These were in need of reconstruction. And he said, there's something I have to pick up there. And so, okay, I'm right here. He said, no, come in with me. We might have to room something. That's a new information to me. I didn't know we were going to be in the moving business. I didn't say that, but it seemed that we went up to that the apartments were on a raised level, definitely higher than the street. And we went in to the first floor. He then led the way to the left. And there were dim light bulbs in the light fixtures in the ceiling. And we came right the way to the last apartment in that fairly narrow runway. I guess wide enough for carrying some furniture, but not spacious by any means. And we came just about to the end of the runway, and you stopped, turned to the left what Burrow, the last, I think the last apartment that would have most likely windows facing out towards the street, facing west. He took out a key, inserted it in the knob. I think it was just a knob, not a separate lock. In the knob of the apartment to unlock it, but the key would not turn. The key wouldn't move. So it obviously was not the key for that apartment. I mean, something was wrong. He couldn't have opened the door. And then he turned to me and he said, I'll try turning the key, but you turn the knob. And I said, it's coming on 11 o'clock now, and we're in a place I don't remember at this place. It isn't we make any noise. We might get arrested. No, and I don't have any tools here, so, you know, I don't think I can help you. And he tried, no, just try turning the knob. It might open up there. I said, no, you won't open up. If the key won't turn, you're out. It won't go. And he seemed a little bit disturbed with that. Flipped the key, put it in his pocket, and said, okay, let's go. So out we went. Just got back in the car. And that seemed to tell me, this is very strange. I also was a little taken back by the way that he spoke and the way that he sort of got upset when I wouldn't help. Let me just mention something else. When talking with him in my car, I noticed that he would start 
very slowly and thoughtfully, almost writing the words with his voice. And most priests, I don't know they do that. Most of them talk so much that they can't even stop the sermon. This didn't seem to match. There's something strange about this. So I said, where's your car? <laughs> said, okay, we got in my car and gave me directions. And we were heading back towards Seton Keogh. I guess it's Keaton Avenue, but I'm not sure. Goes down between the hospital or the St. Agnes and Cardinal Gibbons High School. We went down the hill and I said, we're getting close to Seton Keogh again. And we said, there it is right over and we left there. We pulled into a parking lot that was the lower level of Cardinal Gibbons High School. And right around that section, it looked like garages, garage doors in the lower level. And I know the school used to be an industrial school, but I didn't make any thinking about it. And I said, where's the car? And he said, there it is right there. So we went down. It was down on the parking lot, closer to Seton Hill. And all I could think of was, for all this, he could have walked his way up there, and it wasn't that far from Seton Keo to his car. I said, okay, here it is. Now, I said to him, I'm going to wait until you start the car because of the battery's dead. <laughs> and I snapped up to him. So that was it. He got in the car, thanked me, but it just seemed so strange. Nothing made sense. Keys that don't work places I never was in before. Now, at no time did we know that Kathy had been killed or that there were sex crimes going on in Keel at that time. So we didn't have enough knots to tie them together. My question after this and the accusations that the priest was involved and that I had been around at Nate Marai, why did he want my fingerprints from that mouth? What was in that room? These are questions that maybe the detectives, if they had some more information, maybe even my information, would have checked out. It would have been a real good cover-up and a diverting of suspicion if Kathy's body or any of her clothing or possessions were in that apartment with my fingerprints on the doorknob. Did he touch the doorknob? He did not touch the doorknob. So there's a question I have at this time and soon after the other information was coming out that why did he try to get my fingerprints on that knob if it wasn't part of a cover-up to divert or give them a new person to question and be suspicious about? So just to make sure I understand correctly, you said that Kathy had disappeared 
And then after that's the interaction that you have with Masco when he brought you to that apartment, correct? And then he was inserting the key into the door. He was not touching the doorknob, but he was asking you to turn the doorknob. But the key, his key did not turn. I had a feeling that there was something that just didn't line up with this. If we came in every way up here, why the hell didn't he have the right key? If that's what he wanted, that's the logic. This was not logical. Was this the only interaction you ever had with Father Masker? Yes. That's about it. What did you think happened to Sister Kathy? I think that Sister Kathy might have gotten information. And since she was so highly loved by the girls, I think they told her at least one. And I think that was the most terrible threat. She was the most terrible threat to Maskell and his entire association of pedophiles. And with that type of crime, if somebody even inadvertently gets tied into it, who is outside, a policeman or a detective or somebody like that, just happens to get aware of it, I'll stop by and see. And then observe from that point on, blackmail has got him. You turn me in, and I'll tell him you're part of it. So blackmail is a good cover-up. And I think that's what was taking place. And after a while. If somebody took you back to that apartment, would you be able to identify the apartment that you were taken to? Yes, I would try to do that. We might have the opportunity for you to do that. With more recent, recent from time of the crime, they, the tools of the forensics have improved. That sort of thing, if they are the original tiles floor or something like that, maybe there's some evidence. And that can be fished out from in between Grains of, of wood on a wooden floor. So they're there. Annie, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I just wanted to add a little bit about when my father, mother, and I, in the 90s, when this all researches, when we went down Monumental and just a little bit about what happened there. We stopped at one of the houses that would have been there, and they were actually outside. They were moving boxes. They were getting ready to move, actually. We just kept them. And um, my mother was asking, asking some questions about, were you here during the time of Sister Kathy's murder and her body being found nearby? And they said, oh, yes. And they said, the police never asked us any questions. Here they are right near the I don't know how many houses were around there at the time. They said that one of their kids playing outside sound or cross in the area. And they just made a comment of, I wonder if that was something that the murdered nun had. But again, nothing ever came of that. They didn't go contact the police or anything. And what if she had, the police never contacted or questioned anybody along that road. They also didn't question anybody that lived in the carriage house apartments. Can you believe that? Wow. Because I've talked to some of those residents. They're still living. 
and they told me that nobody knocked on their door. And the only people that the police talked to were those who lived on the court where the car was found. Some of those people had seen the car, but the people that lived in the very same apartment, and one of them was Billy, they were never questioned. But your information has been really helpful, brother. And we're hoping that maybe somebody who knows something about that apartment, maybe that some, some maybe yeah. one of the survivors was taken there. What was just mentioned about us questioning people there, we should have been questioned by the police. I said to the lady who was packing boxes and going to move, I said, have you ever seen a priest driving around this road? And she said, no, I haven't seen anybody drive along the road, but the man who lives over here on the other side of the road has a friend who's a priest who sometimes drops in, maybe a lead and maybe another unconnected dot. There's something else. There are many aspects of justice. Justice is they catch the criminal and they prosecute it and punish. Okay, that's type A. There's another type where even though we can't get a conviction, the public will know what happened. Okay, what you're doing, you got it. But then there's something else. If we can talk to some of the people who were maybe on the peripheral, and they tell us a little more of the story of what they saw, much like I was. We're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.